Hi, and welcome to this new episode of The Light Leaders. Today, I'm with Josh, and I know you from Bali, actually, because I, I met you at a conference because you're a builder, but I also didn't know you're uh, a lot into a plant-based lifestyle and calisthenics. So today in this interview, we're going to talk about uh, what you eat, how you develop your physique with calisthenics and how you help people do that. We're going to talk about how you manage all that with a family and five children, I think. Right. And, and also we'll put it all together because we're very aligned on how it starts with you and having great health, great physique, being fit, but at the same time, you're really passionate about what we call building the new us, building a, a better world for us and our children. So thank you so much for being on the show, Josh. And for the people who listen, I'll do chapters so you can go to the sections that interest you the most. If you want to support, you can share, like, subs subscribe as usual. So thank you, Josh, for joining us. And my first question to yes. you is, what are you grateful for today? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is I want to say thank you for having me on. And it's an honor to be here. And I'm extremely grateful to be here in Bali right now to for my family and to um, live in the, the home that I live in that synchronistically is lined up for us. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I'm thankful for. Mm, amazing. So, Josh, I'd like to start with a little bit of background for people. I'd be interested uh, a bit in your journey in becoming vegan. I think you've tried your vegan and also getting um into really taking care of your like fitness and physique while working a lot at the same time so if you want to wrap up a bit uh, the history and also how old are you what you eat now okay sure so i am 37 now and i've been vegan for 15 years uh and my procession through that uh through that process the start of it was uh, around 19 years whenever I was going through sort of like the kind of dark angsty period where I was realizing so much of the things that were going on wrong with the world, but I didn't had no idea um, the solutions for them. And so I was having that sense of, of apathy and uh, depression, if you will. And around the age of 20, I had a big breakthrough. I moved to Austin, Texas, and... I was starting to like have a big kind of spiritual awakening um, where I was learning a lot about, I, I originally started to look into the secret societies and masonry. And so from that, I started realizing that like a lot of things started making sense about uh, why things were the way they were in the world and how a lot of it's by design and not in, in the scarcity is actually manufactured and et cetera. And so just in starting to have uh, realizations about some of these things, I started to also realize that there was a massive potential for transformation and solutions. And so that was sort of a lifting for me. And during that period, I became a Kundalini teacher trainer, um, not a Kundalini teacher trainer. I did a Kundalini teacher training and became a Kundalini teacher. And through that process, I was really inspired to shift my diet. So originally it was for spiritual reasons. It was, um, it was for uh, becoming lighter, for becoming more energetic. And also I had, I really aligned with the, the philosophy and just the idea of becoming uh, a less dense sort of spiritual consciousness and that sort of thing. And so I originally went to, straight into a raw food diet in about 2008. Um, 
I didn't have much guidance, but there was uh, a pretty strong raw food movement in Austin. It was like very kind of raw food gourmet style. And so the the way that I started doing raw was uh, originally I was focused. I didn't have the, the the context or the education to know that I really should have been focusing more on the fruits for the carbohydrates and for the energy and things. So I was just doing what I knew and I was doing a lot of uh, raw brassicas and raw vegetables and a little bit of fruit and probably too much nut butters and fat and stuff like that. And so even though I was having some real powerful cleansing experiences, um, I was also dealing with some digestive distress and gas and things like that. And so after about three years of, of eating that way, um, and also had I been doing the type of work that I do now and the amount of energy that I exert each day, I probably wouldn't have done so well. I was uh, pretty much a single uh, uh, yoga guy who didn't have so much responsibility and could sleep in when I wanted to, et cetera. Um, and so knowing how I felt then, I was not nearly as energetic as I was. So to get back on the story, uh, I synchronistically met my wife, Alexa, who's one of the most amazing people I ever met. She's the love of my life. And she had already had a maybe 10 year experience being vegan and was deeply rooted in the macrobiotic culture. Um, so macrobiotics is, it's more than just dietary recommendations. It's, it's, uh, has the, even the word means the great life macrobiotic. And it has to do with the understanding of yin and yang, five element theory, spiralic theory, and the application of this wisdom to make balanced dietary decisions, lifestyle decisions, et cetera, in order to have a great life. Um, but for me, whenever she started showing me the way she ate, which is very rooted in like Japanese culture, kind of cuisine. Uh, lots of whole grains, lots of cooked vegetables, seaweeds, um, beans, etc. That was a big step forward for me because I started to become much more carb centric. And I that that thing that I was yearning, which I think was just like a stable diet that felt like I could do it long term. And the fact that I wasn't feeling gassy and I was feeling a, a major shift for the positive in eating that way. Um, Alexa and I Basically, uh, upon being getting married, we ate that way together for probably eight years. Uh, and then, long story short, da da da. I go through. I became a builder. Um, we moved to Nevada City, California, and I was a natural builder out there. And we made a big shift. We got into like the Dr. Morse uh, detox protocol, detox uh, information. We kind of dove headlong into that and started doing high fruit, which is a bit taboo in the macrobiotic scene. Uh, but we dove into the, the, the high fruit and this was had some personal reasons. Um, my stepson, Alexis' son ended up, he, who lived mostly with his dad at that point, he, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And so we really, we dove into the uh, Dr. Moore stuff because we had a deep aspiration and inspiration to potentially um, heal his condition as much as possible. Uh, and I think that we really are on to something important. And, and a big part of that was the, the, the realization of how important the fat content, uh, keeping the fat content at 20% or below around 15 to 20% is like really the ideal kind of range for optimal insulin sensitivity. And so if a type one diabetic keeps their fat in the 15% range and avoids processed foods and stuff, they can reduce their uh, insulin requirements by up to 80%. So 
we went, that's how we went into the Dr. Moore stuff. We really wanted to help uh, my stepson. And we did that for basically three years straight. So it was a hundred percent raw high fruit. Um, we even went no salt for a long time for uh, about a year of that. And that was really amazing. Like we were super felt, I felt very energetic. Uh, I didn't really lose a whole lot of weight or any, like I didn't lose any weight. I don't know why I even said a whole lot. I didn't lose any weight in comparison to what I was eating on a macrobiotics diet. I was able to still build muscle as long as I was getting enough calories. Right. And, uh, we sustained that for a while until about three years, we ended up having another move and there was this big move. We were going to go to Costa Rica. It was right whenever COVID happened. Um, and all the borders shut down. We moved and we, we'd already moved back to Texas where I'm from. And we kind of got stuck in Texas for a couple of years. And just with the, all the stress and with all of the, the, the challenges that we faced for keeping our children like happy and satiated on a raw vegan diet. Um, and, and I just will like insert, it's a little bit challenging to get enough raw vegetables into children. If you're not doing things like superfood smoothies and uh, doing lots of dehydrating, because the, the kids really desire richness a lot of the times. They love the fruit. That was never a problem so much, but they really want that richness. And so we found a nice balance uh, as after that raw bout at about 70 to 80% raw, still high fruit, mostly fruit throughout the day. And then we like to do wakame miso soup, um, millet or quinoa and some beans most nights. And so that's basically where we're resting now. And I feel pretty amazing in, in that ratio at this point. Like I usually don't do any, I do fruit, breakfast and lunch. I don't do any intermittent fasting. I've done that in the past and stuff. Um, and then a good hearty dinner at, at dinner time. Nice, thanks for sharing. And uh, what do you feel like if you didn't have the family context, what do you feel, when do you feel you were your best? Do you feel it helps to have a little bit of that cooked food, like grains into the diet for you? That's an interesting question uh, because I really think that I've, I can probably do fine on an all right raw diet. But I do with through my own experience and through just understanding cell, cellulose content and vegetables and things like that. I think that it's really important to juice vegetables and to incorporate um, some seaweeds into the diet. And also, if you're gonna if you're gonna go fully raw, then to also incorporate some chlorella and spirulina and some just some like sort of uh, she legit fulvic minerals uh, into the diet just to really keep the the mineral content proper. Because I see a lot of people becoming depleted and even dealing with dental issues and things like that. And, you know, I could go get kind of long winded on that topic um, about why I think people can become depleted on more, especially if they're going real high fruit and not getting enough dark leafy greens and enough vegetables in the diet and things. And I think that's a combination of a soil depletion. We're not getting nearly the amount of nutrition in the foods that we used to. And another reason is it's actually three parts. Another reason is due to over-hybridization of most of the fruits for high water, high sugar content in comparison to the mineral nutrient content that would have been more uh, native to say like this, the kind of condensed berry uh, type of fruits that are the ancestors of a lot of the fruits that we have today. 
Um, mm. And so even though those fruits are delicious and the fructose is amazing, it's totally like so human specific and so energizing to us. I think that if we don't kind of do some supplementation, we can still do it with whole foods and natural foods and things, um, but that we can become depleted. And so if I were to be hundred percent raw, I, I actually don't really think that I would want to get rid of wakame miso soup, which is wakame, carrots, onion, and some kale. And it's mm. just so nutritious. It has iodine. It has so many minerals and nutrients. The broth is so powerful and everything. And it's so like non-mucus forming because there's none of the, the grains and beans or anything in there that I, I really don't see a huge benefit in taking it to the point of actually removing the wakame miso soup. But if I were to do that, I would all, I would make sure I incorporated the things that I had suggested before, which is green juices, kind of avoiding the high oxalate ones, such as beet greens, spinach greens, um, chard, that sort of thing. And focusing on the, the, the celery, um, some kale, uh, cucumber, turmeric, et cetera, the, the, all that kind of good stuff. Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's pretty much a lot of what I'm doing being very high raw more than you but actually including even seaweeds or things like um wakame or what we do a lot in bali's uh simos from nusalem mongan it's actually dried and then we put it in water and in the sun so it's still raw but it's, it's dried and then rehydrated uh, yeah we do simos really too they're probably from the yeah. same source actually because uh that's something i also left out like that's that's one i'd say is paramount paramount and super important yes. if you're gonna yeah, but yeah, also the celery juice. Uh, even here, like I'm in Germany for months, I bought a lot of celery. We we have a blender, so it's a lot of fiber, but we blend it, and, and I think that that really helps. But I I also like I think it's good not to be dogmatic. I mean, I'm the same every year. like maybe uh, once a week or something. I end up having cooked food, and it feels good. And to me, it can feel better than especially the raw gourmet. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely feel better than um. It, it, the most important thing that I've found over the years is even though I think that like the, the electrical aspect and the enzymatic aspect of the raw foods is so super important because we are energetic beings. We have an aura that's electrically mm -hmm. fed by the electric foods that we put in our body. Um, what is really the most obvious thing that uh, aspect about diet, about how I feel is the fat content. And so if I do high, if I do raw, uh, gourmet, like even like a slice of some high cashew fatty cake. It's just like, I feel it. And it's really hard for me to digest. It's hard for my whole family. It doesn't, it, it, and then I can feel the, um, less efficient ability to metabolize carbohydrates for a day or so mm -hmm. after that. Um, so yeah, I'm on the same page with you heard that uh, with that as well. So if I'm doing cooked, as long as I'm keeping it at like I say the 20% rank, uh, fat from calories from fat range is the range that I choose to promote because that's a range that allows for people to still get plenty of richness in their diet with nuts and seeds and um, some avocado and things. Uh, but it's still going to really allow for really good insulin sensitivity. And then for diabetics and people who are more sensitive, having blood sugar issues, definitely suggest 15, even at the low end, you know, Dr. Doug Graham, mm -hmm. he suggests 10%. I think that's a little low. I tried that. And, um, I just didn't, I felt like I was lacking richness. And so whenever I'm craving stuff, it's like, there's a fine line between a, a natural 
appetite craving for something and then, you know, an addictive tendency towards rich foods. And I think mm. that over the past 15 years, I've gotten very clear about which, which is which. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I, uh, I heard you say also you did no salt, which I think is very revolutionary because I think a lot of the food addictions, they, they actually a lot of salt, you know, the cheese or the ham or whatever. And so when you do uh, no salt also, it really changes the taste buds, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when you go into that pattern, you can actually see how how much the uh, your taste buds shift and how delicious the food tastes uh, on the other side of it. Right now, admittedly, we do uh, a, a moderate amount of sea salt trying to be, you know, of course, moderate with the things. But that's also um, that's just, a, you know, kind of a has a lot to do with the children as well and just meeting them because it's you know like you said it's good to be not be dogmatic and and also to not be too too rigid um because rigidity causes rebellion and we really want to um, allow for our children to have experiences outside of our diet and things like that um and so we allow for we do indulgent things at from time to time but inevitably when we do these things the kids and our, us are so clean and so like um, somewhat sensitive to non-human specific foods or excess <laughs> quantities of certain foods that um, the, even the kids are very clear about how they feel when they do certain things. And so they, uh, they have a reverence for the, the types of foods that we eat and the occasions that we, <laughs> that we do indulge, they know what they're getting into. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that that's, Let's keep that topic for a little bit later, but yeah, I mean, I'm interested also in how it goes with uh, with your children. One last question on your um, more like nutrition health background. I'm interested if you've done uh, much with fasting. I have done quite a lot of fasting. Um, I have done uh, more so, so I'm trying to think of where to start is I... I before I even got married, I started getting into water fasting and I was doing two or three day water fasts and things like that. And, uh, basically for a little while there, I got really into it and I was doing, uh, I was experimenting even with dry fasting and going in, uh, expediting, uh, ketosis state. And so my experience with dry fasting was, which was based upon my, my research at the time, this is whenever I was probably like 27 or something like that was I would, I wasn't into long-term dry fasting. I wasn't into like wrecking my kidneys and things like that. But what I, I was into was expediting the, um, and stimulating the, the start of ketosis much faster than would not happen on just a, a water fast only. And so what I would do is I would wake up, I would eat dinner and then I would stop eating and then I would wake up and then that would be a, the dry fast day and I would be prepared for 24 hours of dry fast. And I would usually time it, um, for a day whenever we had a big load of mulch coming. Cause we had our own permaculture gardens back in Texas. And I would be the one who unloaded five yards of, of mulch, five cubic meters of mulch by myself. And I would actually do it in the summer. It, you know, it's all sounds kind of crazy, but this is just like what I was inspired to do. I've always been really, I've always loved the heat. I've never had heat exhaustion. I've never had 
Uh, I've, I've been working manual labor. I grew up next to a dairy and we hauled hay for my entire life. And so I'm pretty in touch, was pretty in touch with my body. And I would uh, unload an entire thing of mulch over about a se- uh, you know seven hour period during a hot summer day, which is like sometimes 35 Celsius plus, something like that. And I would sweat. I would burn up all the glycogen in my muscles. And that night, I would most definitely be in ketosis, where in most cases, you kind of have to suffer through this two days of really being hungry on a normal water fast, kick into the ketosis metabolism, which is where when that's when you have the breakthrough and you're like, you don't feel the hunger anymore. And you just like feel really clear headed. And it's because you're no longer starving for glucose. You're actually burning your ketones and starting to like get into the actual real detoxifications part where you're releasing the toxins from the, the, those are stored in the fat and stuff. So I would do one day of dry fast. I would tend to do one to two days of water fast. And then I would like to do however many days I felt like of juice after that. And, and so that's how I'd break the fast and I would juice. And then, um, and then I would go back on to, you know, taper back onto the diet. So that was kind of my, my main fast. I did that one probably 10 times or so. Um, and then other than that, I was, I did a, a bunch of seven day juice fasts. I did the whole mucoid plaque thing with the psyllium husk a handful of times. And which that's a whole another story about like um, mucoid plaque and, and, you know, the psyllium husk situation. I do think it's cleansing, but um, also if you, if you mix psyllium husk with some clay binders and you mix it in water, it basically turns into a jelly. So I think when people like mm-hmm. hold up the stick with the mucoid plaque, I'm like, well, you did turn yourself into a mucoid plaque factory. Uh, no, no, uh, uh, a psyllium husk jelly factory. I do think it's really binding, but it's not like fully what they say. Um, but then intermittent fasting was the other, was the other thing I would do. I would oftentimes fast until, uh, about 12 o'clock each day and only drink water or some tea with stevia and stuff like that. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Here in Bali, a few people and I've done it do Zen cleanse, but I also got a bit skeptical, similar. It's like that, um, GI broom kind of, but then yeah. in July, I did two weeks of water fasting and it was different, but I actually had quite a bit of a uh, release on day 12, actually. So, uh, really? I, I, I definitely think mucoic plaques are real, but they might not be Yeah, what, what you get out after the using the broom, you know, the psyllium. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's, the, I think the mucoid plaque is, is real, but I think that the, yeah, like we were saying, I think that the psyllium husk uh, process. I think it actually could be a broom, but I think that what I would like for people to understand is that the broom is the psyllium husk thing that you, that you pull up. That's like not Mm. all the stuff that came out of your intestines. It's like you, yeah, that's kind of what you drank and, uh, turned into a jelly Mm. in the belly. Yeah. 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 That's, that's good. Um, so let's get a bit more into the, the fitness side, right? Because sure. I'd love for you to share a little bit, like you're, you're really fit. People can go on your Instagram. I'll put the links in the description and I'll, um, that's why I interview you also. That's a pass I'm on is how can I be eating super healthy and vibrant and yeah, look, feel good, perform well. And I feel you've achieved that a lot through calisthenics mainly. So can you share a bit more? Absolutely, man. So it's, I would say it's like a threefold system, essentially, it kind of starts with mindset. Because what we'll what we will see with 
basically any endeavor in life is that if we don't have the discipline to stick with something and we're still lending into addictive patterns, which I, I define an addictive pattern as any type of pleasurable, short-term pleasurable activity that you do that trades the, the, the well-being and the success of tomorrow for that fleeting pleasure of today. And so that can be drugs, alcohol, even like, you know, surface level sex and things like that. So mindset is sort of the key to, to the whole thing. And, um, and it's also a positive feedback loop that as you develop the mindset to lean into positive habit habits, when you start to do the positive habits, it takes effort because it's not easy and it's, it's simple often, but it's not necessarily easy. It takes effort to lean into these things. And often in the beginning stages, it's not comfortable either because we're getting the gears going. We're getting the physiology moving. We're starting to stir up some of the stuff we maybe need to go ahead and pass out of our body. But as we push through that initial stage, which isn't even that long, it just takes a little bit of effort to get the ball rolling. Then we start to get these um, dopamine increases that instead of just plummeting off, they actually go up over a couple hours, taper for four hours, and then level out for four hours, and then kind of taper off at the end. So we get that dopamine increase. We get the, as we continue on, we get to see an increase in our strength. That's also a positive feedback. We get to see over time an improvement in our, phys our physique. That's a positive feedback. We feel better. We look better. We feel better about the decisions we're doing. And all of this feeds back into the discipline to stay on track with it. So that's kind of the mindset aspect. And it's, it's not possible to really talk about one aspect without talking about all of them. So the mindset is the will, will to get going with it. And then the, the, the next aspect is, I would say, the whole food plant-based diet, which I encourage people to transition into a whole food plant-based diet, 20% calories from fat to make sure the insulin sensitivity is great and that people are feeling energized by the diet and aiming for 50 plus percent raw to, to make sure that they're getting that energetic kind of quality in the, in the, the diet. Um, but the, the real key here is that they're through the, some of the guides that I have and the, and the guidance that I have in my membership and things, um, I, I teach them how to get onto a diet that is sustainable, that's well-researched, that's well-studied, that's well, that is most associated with positive health outcomes with a hundred years of accumulative nutritional data, et cetera. So people feel safe, people feel like it's something they can sustain and they start to feel the, and they don't detox too hard. That's another part of it too, is they, they can, they, they don't necessarily start to detox too hard, too fast, because if you go too raw, too fast off a of standard American diet, you may run into some issues. So my goal is to give them the foundation of, of wellness. And then that becomes the foundation that they can then uh, experience going more. And then I encourage to go more raw over time and they can see what is causing what, whenever they kind of branch out, whenever they indulge in things, then it's obvious to see, oh, this is how I feel when I ate the cake after eating pretty clean for a while. And so also the whole food plant-based diet, because it's got the high fiber content, high water content and high nutrient content. So it's calorically not so dense. It's nutritionally dense. Then because our stomachs are satiated by volume, 
they're eating to satiation, getting plenty of nutrients, but not eating excess calories. It's very hard to eat excess calories on a whole food plant-based diet. Then they naturally come to the optimal weight. And so that optimal weight is sort of like, that's the whole foundation for your energy levels being right, for your body functioning correctly. And then simultaneously, I'm teaching people to do what I call high intensity, low volume calisthenics. And so that is, it's basically the understanding that you don't need tons of exercise and tons of muscular stimulation to achieve a very fit and natural physique. You don't need protein supplements. You don't need any fitness supplements really to achieve your optimal physique. And so if you're doing these high intensity calisthenics while having the proper diet, and you've got the mindset to stay consistent with it for a period of time, then you'll naturally start to see the muscles build from underneath and you'll see the fat layer reduce on the top and the physique will transform. And so depending where you're at, where your starting point is, you will be able to see um, physiological changes in uh, a relatively short amount of time. So it, somebody who's already kind of lean, will see changes in their physique in 90 days if they're really doing um, the high intensity uh, workout. And so what I describe as high intensity, and this is an important aspect of it, because we're doing low volume, it's important that we do put a lot into our workouts. And so what does that, that mean for calisthenics um, or workouts in general? Uh, it means that when we do any one of the exercises that we actually push the repetitions all the way to the point where we cannot go through the full range of motion of the last rep. So I call that going to failure. The, the reps before failure, those ones where you're no longer in the easy reps, you're now having to put in a lot of energy to go through the range of motion. Those are called grinding reps. And the grinding reps are where the majority of micro tears are occurring in the muscle where the lactic acid is building up and where when you have adequate nutrition afterwards, they, they will build up stronger and larger than before. So that's kind of the, the, the whole system in a nutshell. The type of calisthenics I teach is basically variations of push-ups, pull-ups, and squats three times a week with a rest day in between and uh, about a 30-minute to 40-minute session. So it ends up being one to two hours of, of calisthenics per week. Yeah, that's, that's low and efficient. I have a question on going to failure, especially on exercises like push-ups and pull-ups um do you are you concerned that I, for me i feel if i really go until failure on a pull-up or a push-up it's really hard to maintain good form and i feel like i end up cheating with either wiggling my body or like uh, how yeah uh, is that a concern As like do you want to be not... more just functional okay okay let's do the last one okay you just need to get up or do you really focus on getting the right muscles i definitely focus on form still um i definitely still put focus on form the, the main key is that you're not like starting to like really try and favor one arm or get out of balance and and accidentally like tweak something weird um but like if you practice good form from the get-go and you the your your grinding reps you continue to maintain good form and then your final rep you're maintaining good form but you're not able to go through the full range of motion then that's really kind of the ideal because 
when we're doing uh, the the beginning the beginner style of calisthenics movements, we're we're building the foundation for more advanced movements, uh, and we're building the muscle, the joint stabilization. We're building all of that, and so as good a form as possible is ideal. But of course, like whenever I'm doing pull ups and I start to get to that those final reps, I hitch more. It's called hitching, where you kind of you use more of the momentum of your whole body rather than just like a perfect um, pull up. But then, you know, one more little tidbit on there is if you're out there doing exercise, then you're, then you're winning to some extent. If you're out there doing exercise and you're going high intensity and you're, do, and you're doing good form for the most part, and you're not like hurting yourself, then, then you're winning. It's interesting when I look at um, yeah, exercise can be combined. But for example, you probably know Ted Carr, and he's also advocating for more um, sh like high intensity, but not too much. And he says actually a lot of people they overtrain, they spend too much time in the gym, and actually their strengths and muscles don't really grow sometimes because of that. And at yeah. the same time, I feel the the natural way is also like if we're in nature. We'd probably do some sprints and some high intensity sometimes, but we'd also move a lot, right? And when I look at you, I think, okay, you're doing those high intensity, it works a lot, but you're also a builder. So you're actually moving a lot during your day. Like your, your whole job is about moving. So sometimes I wonder, okay, what's um what's really working there? Is it to be really more active all day and do physical things? And that's how you build really that physique or is it more that session at the, at the high intensity? Well, I can tell you I've gone, I definitely haven't been steady with my calisthenics workout for 15 years straight. Um, I've gone in and out of good routines with calisthenics throughout the years. Always the good routine is in times of stability, whenever there's not as much stress, whenever we're like settled into a home for a period of time and always where we fall out of um, our, our more positive habits is whenever something becomes unstable. Like for example, in my case, it's anytime we had to move, we've moved about five times where you, you know, you start staying up later to pack, maybe you start doing some caffeine to try and like keep up with the energy, not getting up early anymore, doing the meditations and getting that in those endorphins and things that nourish us. And so you start to indulge it and, in in more instant gratifying things. And you, the less of the focus goes to the, the calisthenics and that sort of thing. And so I have certainly gone through my peaks and valleys and I've been a builder the whole time. And I can a hundred percent say that the, the, the physique that I have now, which is like where you can see obvious muscular development, like it looks like I work out to some extent where my pectorals are bigger, my arms are bigger. You can see striations in my deltoids, etc. Even though I've always lean and I'm always somewhat mu muscular. You can always see my abdominal muscles and things like that. I put on about 15 pounds of muscle whenever I get into this routine that I do, which is that maybe two hours max a week uh, of the calisthenics. And so it definitely has a lot to do with, with actually going through the more high intensity movements. Now, do you have to go to the exhaustion exhaustion point no, but it's much easier to teach people to push towards the exhaustion point, especially in the early phases, because I actually sometimes will go within three reps of exhaustion. 
because I know my body and I, I know that still the majority of the, uh, the positive work is happening during those grinding reps and within that three rep range of exhaustion. Um, people who are new, they might think that they're exhausted 10 reps before or 15 reps before they even get there. So it's better to just be like, go until you can't go through another one, take a few breaths and do one more. And then also that also sets the, the goal and the standard for take, observe what you did the, on the, the first workout that you've ever done, or if you've done it for a time, observe how many reps you did on that workout. Remember that or log it. I encourage people to log their repetitions and aim, aim five above that next workout. So you're always, the, the, the way that muscles grow is by taking the, the uh, muscle a little past what you did last time, getting a little stronger, even if it's a fraction of a percent each workout, it, it really does build up. And even though I've only, I only put maybe 15 pounds of muscle on um, during a good routine, which I put about 15 pounds of muscle on this last year. Uh, part of my story for this round is that I got in a scooter accident last year and I was pretty knocked down um, for six months or so. I definitely lost, I was down to maybe like 145 pounds. In fact, I was about 145 pounds. So maybe I put almost, I put basically uh, 17 pounds of muscle on in a year after that scooter accident, after I got back into doing my workouts again. Nice. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm interested also because you talked about your family and children. Well, first, I think it's really cool that um, so you have a, a job that takes a lot of time and then you have uh, five children, right? So no excuse. <laughs> Basically, you, you're not like a, a yogi that has so much time, which is often the, let's say, the stereotype of the raw vegan is that it's someone who has no responsibility and a lot of, a lot of time. Um I'm also interested, yeah, for your children. I don't have children myself, but I I have been a child, like <laughs> everyone. I remember. And <laughs> and I know there's always a tricky balance between showing them what's right and not creating rebellion or feeling like, oh, we're vegan, you can't have the meat, sorry. And and then it creates something in them where they feel uh, they want the thing thing that they can't have you know so how how what was your experience with the children on and do you feel they really embrace uh the nutrition you raise them with and that they'll keep that um, ongoing i really think that that they're super solid in not harming animals as much as possible like they're like diehard have the diehard vegan spirit in the sense that we've, we actually, um, we had our own permaculture farm back in Texas. We had like 50 animals, we, which were just all pets. And basically my wife, uh, she, she got real into going on the, I don't know if you know what Craigslist is, but it's just like an online, uh, kind of market. And she would go and find all these animals. She'd be like, Oh, there's just like two more bunnies. They're only 30 miles away. Can you go get them? So we were just like collecting animals whenever my two daughters were, uh, three and you know two and three and so they were raised with lots of little animals um even like miniature donkeys and miniature, miniature shetland ponies and chickens and all the, all the rest of it and they deeply connect and connected with those animals mm -hmm. 
they would even tell us stories about their social lives and, and, and everything. They're very intuitive and things. And so on that note, they definitely are they're, they're I don't think that they're going to eat, have a desire to eat meat uh, besides possibly. And they're curious beings, of course. Right. But um, they, they, they think it's pretty gross right now. My oldest is 12. My, um, my youngest, he's just two. So he just does, does whatever everybody else does. Um, they do have some curiosity about eggs from time to time. And because there's eggs like, you know, the, the Balinese folks here, like their chickens are laying eggs and things like that. And they know that there's eggs and pastries and that sort of stuff. And so they have had eggs a, a handful of times just in like in that regard. And I don't really know what that's going to look like as they develop. I mean, as they they do know about factory, like what happens in factory farms with with the egg industry and how the the male roosters are just basically ground up and how how atrocious it is for the chickens. And so they're definitely not into that kind of thing. But, um, you know, like somebody's well-loved chicken, even though it's like a totally unnatural hybridized animal at this point. And I don't support that. And I don't think that there's nutritive necessity. And I think that any sort of excess egg intake is going to cause issues. I don't know what they'll do with that. I don't have a desire to eat the eggs. Um, and they pretty much 99% of the time don't say anything about it, but there have been a couple of times that's just being totally transparent. And, and in that way, we were just like, okay, you know, try an egg if you like it. Um, but then oftentimes they smell the cooking pan after they ate the egg and they're like, this is disgusting. <laughs> like they, they eat the thing. This is happening like two times since we've been here ever. And they were like, this smells disgusting. Mm -hmm. So that's that, that's the short answer there. Yeah. So you, you still allowed them to have their own experience on this. Yeah, definitely. In that regard, I don't think I would cook the meat or anything like that. If, if they wanted to do that when they're older, then that's, that's their own thing. But the, just the world does not need any any more um suffering and the animals definitely don't need any more suffering and the the data is just so clear um towards greatly reducing if not completely eliminating meat you know the data is basically conclusive that 95 percent plant-based is 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 absolutely optimal and it's and it appears that 100 percent is even better than that um and so be, being that there's no nutritive necessity, and believe me, I've done tons of research. I've done thousands of hours of nutritional research, and I've tried to see, is there any nutritive necessity? Because we have to, we have to, especially with children, go into something like this um, responsibly. And um, I, I truly don't believe that there's any nutritive necessity for animal products at all. And so especially as we heal the gut microbiome, um, more things are synthesized than we even realize in the gut microbiome and adding in, I actually believe in doing some ferments, some natto and some krauts and things like that. Doing those things cover the uh, B12 and K2 profile. There's just nothing that you can't get from plants. And so that's, we're very, very oriented in the mo in doing the most healthy, compassionate, and even like spiritually uplifting diet as possible. And for the most part, the kids are on board with that. Amazing. The kids, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to like to like come to like a a good conclusion to that conversation. The, the, the kids, kids are are different in this way that once they've tasted something, like it creates it, it they they experience the dopamine spike just like anybody. And so there's this issue with um the the we live around all these Balinese stands 
and they're cooking these rich food and this disgusting oil and things like that. And then the neighbors are constantly giving the kids food and stuff like that. And so our kids have tasted like these fried um, veggie cakes and thing like that. And then because they've tasted that richness, then there's a little bit of rebellion. They're like, we just want some more richness or something like that. And so it's definitely a fine line of really wanting to take care of the body, especially in this day and age where basically most of the processed food have gra graphene oxide and other crap like that in it. And we know that the majority of these refined foods are not made with the intention of, of keeping people healthy and empowered. Um, then we, we, we really try and keep them as pure as possible without creating this divide between us. And so I can, the way I'll conclude that is that it is a, um, it is a challenge that we face um, though. Our kids are smart. Our kids are like totally advanced, amazing children. And I trust in their process and um, the unfolding. Yeah. Thanks for sharing honestly. And it is hard because uh, even like in Bali, we probably have a better environment in general, but yeah, the Balinese aren't very advanced in terms of their nutrition and their health overall. And that's why I think in that context, it would be much help, more helpful to live in a conscious community, right? To avoid those Absolutely. temptations. Because on one, on one hand, um, it's true that we want maybe sometimes children to have their own experience. So it's not like, there's a rule and that's why we're vegan that's why you don't use the social media etc but at the same time those things are addictive by nature so we also need to protect them in a way right so the ultra stimulating foods the ultra stimulating like yes yeah, the same with using uh the phone a lot it's yeah. always a, a challenge i can see in the parents around me well you know what the one of the big challenges also is is that if you become too rigid uh then there will be a more tendency for uh, the children to lie because they, they've got, they want to do. And I know this in my own pattern growing up is like whenever my parents were over strict or over rigid, which I don't even think they were being unreasonable for the things that, you know, I wanted to do drinking at a young age and things like that. But I kept secrets from them. I hid things. And the, so it's, it really is a fine balance. And I oftentimes, uh, you know, look to the, to the super conscious and be like, show me, you know, I don't know. Just like, give me, give me the guidance to, to, um, be as, um, calm, patient, compassionate, but also, um, a rock and to keep my children safe because it is, it, it does come down to that in this day and age. It's not just like, Oh, they're eating bad food. It's like, there is warfare on human consciousness at this point. And so it, it it's, it, there's more at stake. You know, so it's like, no, I don't want you to eat that candy you just found on one of the offerings because it's it's like the, the lowest quality possible and came from some factory somewhere and who knows what they're putting in that stuff. And so, yeah, it's a tricky, yeah. tricky, tricky situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I agree with that and probably a lot of people who listen can see that. I'd love to uh, gravitate for the end of this interview towards like building the new earth because uh, you're also a, a builder and you work with a uh, friend Juan also and people who are very aligned on creating, um, let's say, buildings and architectures that are in line with nature that are better for the energetics overall. 
and and I think uh, I think soon we will co-create together because I'm also deep into co-creating conscious communities and uh, yeah my friends and I we we love your work you know what you're doing in Wanu in many places so well one thing I wanted to ask also is you've been a mycologist also mm-hmm. and a week ago we did an interview with uh, a guy who got basically messages from a channel and she was saying the homes of the future will be made of mushroom. <laughs> I don't know if you have any plans to build with mushrooms. Sure. Absolutely, man. So we, we basically all that, what that comes down to is um, somehow creating a brick out of some sort of fibrous carbohydrate rich or cellulose rich material, running the mycelium across that brick and then somehow like compacting that and petrifying it in some way. Now, the ability to potentially take a create a mycelial network and then pressure pump some sort of solidifying fluid into the the network would be uh, a very cool option. So I don't know exactly what that fluid is and what it could be some sort of bioresin, a highly this highly what's the opposite of viscous other than you know, non-viscous solution that you were actually able to pump or, or hydraulically press into the mycelial network, uh, that would create an, an incredibly strong sort of brick that way. Um, so I think that's really cool. Maybe we could do something with coconut core. Maybe we could do something with, yeah, the, 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 the you know, the, the technology is right on the other side of research and development. And research and development is right on the other side of investment. And investment is right on the other side of some well-written business plans that uh, that look like they're going to keep us and put us in the green. Which nobody, you know, any, anybody, you and I, we don't care about getting rich, making tons of money. But we do in this time of transition. Whenever so much of the energy is tied up into in in the money, we we have to um, we have to integrate our visions and technologies into successful and profitable businesses, which become the model for actually how um, a system becomes perpetual. So that's, yeah, then that, so I, whenever I say that, I, I start to think about how basically like everything is toric. Every sort of self-organization system is toric. If we look at nature and we look at all scales of the universe, even a business is this way. It takes a certain amount of input and a certain amount of resources, intelligence, um, organization, etc., to get the energy flowing. It requires a certain amount of people, a certain scale of people to do all the different tasks at that perfect scale of organization. Um, and then it takes the actual assembly all the processes of of the business whether it be making micro bricks or whatever and then it has an output that then is profitable so the energy comes back into the system so then we get this self-organization of charge and so that business then become becomes you know a toroid in itself and this is how a community looks we've got all the different aspects of a community that are necessary we got the water we got the food and we basically the energy we've got the infrastructure we've got um the architecture etc all these things we have to transition from the infrastructure the degenerative extractive 
infrastructure that is currently in place and that the majority of the population relies on, even you and I to some extent, and we have to replace them, every aspect of that with the re regenerative version. And the beautiful thing is that much of it's already developed and all the rest of it is just on the other side of some investment and research and development. Um, and, and so like the, and then the, the other cool aspect of it is that basically all the technologies, all the regenerative technologies essentially break down to um, implosive technologies. So going from the explosive, extractive, sort of burning fuels and things to create propulsion, to turn generators and do work to create electricity, et cetera, et cetera, to actually creating implosive fields through using proper geometry, proper site selection, proper materials, et cetera, to create an implosive vortex that then spins back out and creates these toric fields to start instead of propelling generators we start to impel mm -hmm. and we start to create magnetic uh energy from magnetism and once you got energy everything else then it, you basically can do everything else i mean we can turn salt water into pure water you know it's like so th yeah that's like the kind of big picture i've got like a my own perspective on um the steps and you know how where we are what the the so basically, it's like where we are with uh, our current civilization is that all the problems that we face with our current civilization are based in scarcity, based in scarcity of resources. If we don't have resources, then we have to trade our time for money to buy resources. So we're now scarce in time. So then we're scarce in time to spend with our family. Um, when there's not this time for connection, then it, it leads to uh, disconnection and conflicts that arise because people are not having their needs met because there's not there's not the enough abundance for this connection for conflict resolution this all the issues that come from not having enough resources create crime create trauma create conflict and these traumas in a scarcity based system which if we look at uh 99% of all the resources on the planet are controlled by 1% of the population then scarcity is manufactured you know, it could have to do with the Kali Yuga and that as well, just being in this time of, you know, composting and breakdown to create the rich, fertile soil for the new, the new earth, the golden era. Then, um, in that, in that time, then like the scarcity basically creates this, this trauma, traumatic sort of environment and creates all the issues that we look, we see. And so as we transition into this new earth, then we still are carrying the echoes of trauma held in the subconscious mind. So there's got to be a simultaneous trauma resolution process, which we can look at the ancient shamanic processes of guiding people in the subconscious mind and creating resolution um, through acting things out, through imagery, etc. There are already many trauma resolution processes that are very effective that basically bring people into a slight hypnotic state, allow them to stand up for the inner child, for the child that was ab abandoned and that was left traumatized, that then the subconscious mind created a protection program around that trauma that's in a loop in your mind, you know, going on and kicks in unconsciously when you get triggered, etc. So the, the, there are ways to resolve these traumas and these traumas, why that's important is because it's very hard not only to live in a family, whenever you have these traumas kicking in and you're getting into relationships and stuff and you see these unconscious behaviors that play out. But 
it's even more challenging to live in a community because the easy way to put it is everybody's got broken toes. And whenever we all get together in, in, in one space, we tend to step on each other's broken toes. So there is this cha challenge and opportunity that we face to heal the, uh, the trauma from the, to heal these unconscious programs from the traumas of scarcity while remedying the scarcity in itself through implosive technologies, free energy technologies, et cetera. And so we have to, um, the, the imagery is that you can heal the traumas, but if you're still in a dirty fish bowl, those traumas are going to continue to recirculate. So there's this simultaneous process that we'll go through of trauma resolution through deeply connecting with one or one another. The foundation being in this sort of recognition that we're not the, the mind, we're not the, the, the limitations of the mind, we're not the limitations of this body, but in the deepest aspect of our truth is that we're all the same spirit watching through all eyes. And being rooted in that awareness of this, you know, it's called self-realization, being rooted in that awareness um, allows us to have the deepest sense of compassion. And when we have that deepest sense of compassion, then we can develop devotion. Devotion is the willingness to witness each other through all the messiness. Uh, and so that's what a marriage is. We basically wit uh, agree to witness ourselves through another for a life. Uh, and, and to, and that the, basically the vows that me and my wife had to each other was that no matter how lost we get, no matter how deep the stories get, no matter how many stories we make up, we'll always return to the heart and we'll always find God within one another. And we've gone through that process so many times. And the devotion is the only thing that allows it to be possible because anybody who's been through these challenging situations knows that you start fantasizing about how much better it would be on the other side. If you could just have a partner who understood you this way, or you just had, you know, this other situation, but then with maturity, you realize that you can't escape your own stuff. It presents itself perhaps through different angles and different experiences. It'll continue to present itself to you. Um, and so all that to say is that um, I found that I really look at it in a fractal sense. Like I think that it begins with you. It begins with you being honest, humble, witnessing yourself for all your incredible gifts, but also the unconscious patterns that you've accumulated through the traumas of scarcity, ancestral traumas and all, having compassion for yourself, knowing that it's all part of the perfect process, et cetera, but then leaning into the solution, leaning into the solution-based mindset and, and so part of that is developing the will, developing the discipline to start eating more compassionately, going towards a vegan diet. We've got plenty of research to show us at this point that you're going to be fine. You're probably going to live longer. Just go for it. You, you, you can still, if you want to be a bodybuilder, you can do that. Um, but ultimately, you can be a very healthy individual. If you stop eating animals, your consciousness is also going to shift. And this is part of the trauma resolution process you start leaning into doing more fitness for yourself. You gain confidence, you gain courage, you become a role model. And ultimately you continue to trade these vices for the virtues. And what that does is that you develop self-love, self-respect. You put the animalistic nature where it belongs down in the digestion 
where you don't need to think about it. And you bring the higher will and the higher consciousness to the throne. And you start steering from that place where you know, for example, with marriage, some people will say, you know, we're all meant to be polyamorous and da, 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 da. And like, okay, maybe something like that in like a tribal situation or whatever, where everybody knows everybody loves each other. It could be more of a natural situation for there be multiple partners. But my experience is that I, in the marriage, have traded my animalistic lusts to be with multiple women because it exists, you know, like I can get in touch with that. Like I can be, you know, attracted to many different women and things like that. But to tr I've traded that and I've traded my freedom as a bachelor. I've traded these things for something higher and something better and something more righteous, if you will, to, without trying to get too much into like religious words and things like that. And what that is, is the devotion to my wife so that she can feel like she's as in as stable of a scenario as possible so that she can be most nurturing and caring for my children so that my children have the most stable environment possible for them to feel safe and to, because if you think about a turtle, a turtle doesn't actually come out of its shell if it feels threatened. It's the same with children. If children have too much chaos, then their nervous system, their reptilian brain is constantly, the adrenaline's just a little bit higher and it doesn't allow for the unfolding as much. So when we trade the animalistic nature for the higher will, when we can see these higher outcomes, then that's the develop of discipline. That's the, the development in the in the rethroning of the higher will. And when we do that, we show up more powerfully for ourselves. We show up more powerfully for our families. And we show up more powerfully for our careers and our altruistic works. And when we build strong, devoted families, then this is the next scale of foundation for strong devoted communities and so this is what i think i say i think it all starts with you but there's no one piece is complete without the whole so yeah hmm. yeah that's that's very interesting and um even on the on the money part i've seen in some community let's say trials where you remove the money too quickly actually we get we lose accountability, we lose integrity sometimes or responsibility. So there is, it's not all black and white. And I think we can both agree that it has taken a lot of power too much in our world, but there's probably going to be some transitions. And I love that you, like for you right now, it's more your family and the business thriving. Um, do you feel, do you feel the timeline of being in a community most likely in Bali, with permaculture, uh, natural buildings, free energy, and other really cool technologies, um, conscious people around decentralized governance. Do you feel living in these kind of communities far away or pretty close? So, oh, well, to start with, is that a desire of yours? <laughs> I just, it absolutely is my a desire, desire of mine. Yeah. It is absolutely a desire of mine. And um, I think that uh, that when I was younger, I actually thought it was closer than um, I do now. Now, I am also very open to miraculous transformation in short periods of time. And I think that even the pressures that are put on to the planet catalyze these things, um, alchemically catalyze. When you put pressure on an experiment, then it actually catalyzes the reaction. And so 
we may be in a situation where we just got to dive in and, um, and, and face what comes up, which is, you know, that's a lot of how my life has gone also is that, you know, you don't, you're not necessarily ready for every next step, but you're clear in the vision, the opportunity arises and having, you know, being oriented in inspiration-based living, we take those steps into the unknown. The, 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 the step always lands beneath the feet. Doesn't always look like we expect, but it always takes us to the next perfect synchronicity and opportunity. So I think that there's a definitely a possibility that that opportunity could arise for us right now. The most natural progression that I see, if things continue on with some semblance of stability in the um, the world stage for another thirty years or so, to 15, 20, 30 years, something like that. So, I think that a lot of abundance and a lot of resources are about to get unlocked for a lot of people. I think the next bull market with the crypto, you know, assuming they don't crash the entire economy before then, I don't think that that's the cycle that that's going to happen just yet. I think we're going to get a boom. And there's going to be a lot of resources that flow into a lot of conscious people's hands. Also, there's about to be a lot of resources flow into a lot of new technologies, including the the company I work, you know, it's me and Juan's company, BioArt. I think that there's a lot of resources and there's already a lot of potential investment coming into that. And there's already proof of concept and even measurements on the energetic uh, optimization of the spaces and things like that, that what will happen is that we'll start to invest in land next to each other, like very close proximity together, where we have shared spaces, shared gardens, um, and where we start to do community activities together. We even start to have meetings. We have, we have We just start to lean into these things. But even one of the big important things is that we start to um, embed together. Now that's, this is getting into fractal terminology, but this is where we, when we get clear about who our soul family is and who we actually think that we want to combine, become our family, who we think we're ready to devote with. And this basically comes to that self-realization aspect is like, when we see God in one another, then, then we're really like, we're getting to that same frequency. And when we do this, then what we can start to do is we can start to have bliss together. And the most kind of sustainable, natural way to do that is to start to eat meals together. Dan Winter talks about this a lot. Dan Winter is my main mentor on fractal physics. And he's, I consider him one of the, the greatest, the greatest people on the planet. He's just like an amazing uh, genius and compassionate, deep hearted man. Um, we start to have meals together. We start to do yoga together. We start to have community events. We tell each other about our most held secrets. We, we reveal our shame. We reveal our pain. We laugh together. We cry together. And this allowance, when we do these things, we actually become self-similar. Our geometry starts to become more natural, more golden mean. Because if you think about what happens if you have a secret, it's basically you take an experience, a thought, an energetic pattern, and you you clench down around it. And then the energy is no longer able to be shared and is no longer able to flow to others and things like that. And so it becomes an energetic blockage. And so whenever we're able to actually 
start having bliss together, express our secrets, start to feel safe, knowing that we're going to still be loved and accepted and stuff like that, then something really powerful starts to happen is we actually begin to experience ourselves as a family, as one, and the devotion increases. And so from that place, as we truly become devoted, then we can start to talk about combining all of our resources. We're obviously going to start overlapping and sharing as much as possible. More than anything, I want to be generous with everybody uh, in, in my community, my family. But what we have to also be mature and recognize is that there are echoes of trauma, of scarcity that are in our subconscious minds. And so that's when you take away money in a community, you start, you still have this, this sense of like some, some issues that come up because not everybody is a hundred percent sure that they're going to be okay. And that everybody else is going to do whatever it takes to take care of them. So through this process of getting closer together, buying land together, sharing resources to, you know, but not sharing all the resources just yet. Cause that's just too much for our little, our little subconscious minds. We're still trying to take care of those inner children who are scared. Um, but we nurture that care. We nurture that devotion to one another and we have bliss. Our auras literally start to embed and our karma becomes intertwined. So you got to choose wisely. Who do you want to actually intertwine your karma with? Because this really could lead to us ascending or traveling the stars together in our auric bodies and our plasma bodies. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's my thing in a nutshell is I do think that's where we're going is community living. And the next most practical step that I can see is bringing those resources, putting our res sharing our resources, combining them into our projects, into our gardens, into our technologies, into all of our well-being, And then from there, nurturing that connection and moving into the next deeper level of connection. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. I feel very aligned with that and uh, excited for this probable future to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. We'll keep holding the vision, brother. Yeah. yeah. I have a saying, it's uh, I, I, I step forward, I, I step, I lean into the vision so graciously bestowed. I lean into the vision so graciously bestowed and I bow and surrender to whatever unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having the vision and at the same time um, letting go of being too attached to specific outcomes. It's, it's going to be different dance. than we expect. Yeah. It's going to be different. It's probably going to be better. I mean, I like that. I like to have that belief. There's going to be more, especially yeah. if we, as we continue to implode, get closer to center, it's going to be, it's going to be blissful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, and um yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, we could go for much longer, but I think that's a good one for now. Is there anything you'd like to share as a last thought to our listeners? I just want to to like share some love with everybody and just want to thank everybody for showing up and saying yes to life. And I know it's it's really intense times and it can be scary at, at times. There's a lot of question marks, um, but I truly believe that that when we lean in and when we say yes and we open to the possibility, we ask for guidance. Um, we ask for guidance from that super consciousness, from that higher self, which is what we all share, that the unfolding is absolutely perfect. And everybody is playing their perfect part 
even the the dark elites and this and that they're just puppets and that even at some scale the because everybody answers to somebody at some scale there's a conspiracy for all the good and at some time at some you know at some scale uh, who's conspiring it, it, you know it's it, it's the great spirit the mighty one with the great mind and so i think everything's gonna be all right love you guys thanks for saying yes let's keep leaning into the vision together i know we share it and you know i just wish you the best of health always